This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are following as best we can the rules of investing created by the greatest investors in the world, essentially key guys like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Ben Graham, Manish Pabrai, Guy Spear, some fantastic people who are following a simple rule of investing that says the main focus of your investing has to be rule number one, don't lose money. And essentially that means you're focused on the downside. Manish Pabrai <laughs> says it's like, you're looking for free lottery tickets. And the key is, if you'll think about that as a metaphor, it's so brilliant. I love it. Manesh is brilliant. And he said, it's basically, you're looking for something that isn't going to cost you anything. It doesn't have a downside. It's a free ticket. But the upside is amazing. It's a lottery ticket. You have a ticket to the big show. And so we really want to have both of those things in each investment. But the critical one is that it's a free lottery ticket. Very little downside. So Manesh sometimes says, you know, uh, heads I win, tails I don't lose much. I don't lose much, yeah. To me, yep. that's the that's the the one that I keep in my mind because the idea of no losses and free lottery ticket instead of very cheap lottery ticket <laughs> makes me feel like <laughs> the bar is way too high. And one great lesson I've learned from watching Buffett in these last few years is that he makes mistakes on the regular and people just don't talk about them that much because he gets out of them really fast. He recognizes it. He takes the loss. He gets out. He moves on. Yeah, like he just did that. He just did that with the airlines. And I exactly. really took that to heart. He just was like, I screwed up the end. I've sold it. We're moving on. Moving on. Yep. That's, that's really the key thing. And if you think about it, why it's so important is because the rest, first off, the rest of the investing world doesn't think like that. The rest of the investing world is thinking about making money and being profitable. That's what your advisor is thinking about, hoping to do. That's what you probably want to do. Very, very few investors take it seriously that they're not thinking about the upside. They're thinking about the downside over and over and over again. But Charlie takes it dead serious. I mean, he basically first off says we do that by staying away from things we don't understand. And that means you have to know what you don't understand. And that's really mm -hmm. hard to do. You have to know mm -hmm. what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's a big advantage for Buffett and Munger. They really feel like over our lifetimes, we really do know what we don't know. And we stay away from it. So we don't lose money. And that key thing is, uh, drives another critical Mungerism, which is invert, always invert. Mm -hmm. In other words, you need to know the downside story on this thing, you know, like what could go wrong story? Like, why am I not investing in this as a, as a, a fund manager at Goldman Sachs? You know, why am I out of here? Um, yeah, that's, you need to know a, that story. Right. Like, why is the person selling to me selling? Why right. do they want to get out? Right. This is somebody from Harvard Business School 
who's way smarter than I am. And <laughs> I hate it when you say that. <laughs> but okay, he's not smarter than you, but they're smarter than me. I don't think he's smarter than you. It's 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 just such a like just because somebody went to a good school doesn't mean that they're any like smarter or less smart than anybody else. Put it like this. I couldn't have gotten into that good school. <laughs> yeah, you could have, frankly. No, I really couldn't If have. you had actually done what you need to do, you definitely could have. Oh, all right. I, I think you're giving me way too much credit, honey. But thank you because you're my daughter and you're sweet and I love you. Uh, but I am I, going to, you know, I'm to, going to stipulate. I'm going to stipulate. <laughs> That these are the smartest people in the room. When you went to high school, these were the smartest people. And then they were the smartest people in college too. And they really applied themselves and they got into the great schools and they went to a great education and they came out. And um, that's who's selling to you. <laughs> you, should, you should know that. That's 85% of the money in the stock market. So when you're starting to buy a company and you think it's on sale, the person selling it to you more likely than not by far is a fund manager who has said, ah, I'm out of here. Yeah. It's not some individual investor in, you know, who doesn't know what they're doing. Like if you're going to play poker online, your, your cousin is really good at playing online poker and they just love it when they get these drunk college guys in there because <laughs> they can take advantage of them, right? This is not a drunk college guy selling you this stock. Let me tell you, it's not. <laughs> It's somebody very smart who knows what they're doing, and they've decided this is a bad idea to own yeah, this Yeah, because here. as we've established many times, probably on this podcast, probably they have different incentives, different goals, different time horizon than we do. That's and under part of And it. understanding that, oh. Well, don't, don't get complacent about that because that's just part of it, and it only comes into play Sometimes. I would say really most of the time it doesn't come into play, but sometimes it does. And that is that they have short-term goals and we can have long-term goals. By and large, when they're getting out of stuff, unless there's a major event going on, they're getting out of it for a reason and it's a good reason and you better know what it is. So before you go buy yeah. it, you better know what it is. Right? Yeah, but I think the time horizon is a really important element of that because huge. Oh, yeah. the whole the whole thing that we do is, but that thing will resolve in two years or but that thing will resolve in whatever, three years or something. Like it's not going to, it's not short because if it were, right. most of the market would stay in. Right, exactly. It's not short. So right now what's going on, of course, is that a lot of uh, people have sold out of companies <clears throat> and that's being driven in part by fear um, that this market's not going to recover. And now after 11 years of a bull market, we're going to be into years and years of a nowhere market. And then, and so, you know, traditionally people would be bailing out of this market and it would drop 50 to 60%. That's just really traditionally what happens. Yeah. But they're not. And the reason they're not bailing out of the market and it's not dropping is because there's nowhere to go. Yeah. What are you going to yeah. do? Where are you going to put your money? Yeah. And, you know, you can't put it in bonds really because it makes, you know, they're paying nothing. And you're retired and, you know, you're not going to be able to get back in the market because it's going to be really scary down the road. 
I mean, and people just don't know what else to do except sit tight. It's that plus, I think, the government mm-hmm. making it very, very clear that they're going to bail out companies mm-hmm. as much right. as they possibly can. Right. And so people know they kind of have this, this really a big brother going, okay, guys, like you can screw up a lot and we're still going to be here. Right. And that's going to create its own problems. Absolutely. It, this is nothing like gets the airline done in the example that everybody knows about now of them spending all of their earlier bailout money on stock buybacks and now asking for more bailouts. It's maddening. Oh, it's so frustrating. So uh, it's very possible that the federal government would just say, you know, you deserve to to have a problem and yeah, I mean, that, and that's the, the flip right side of it. That's right. Is it taxpayers who are the ones paying for it? It sounds like it's sort of magical government money, but no, it's it's our money. And at some point we might just say, you know what? Never mind. We're not up for this constant bailing out of companies that have spent all their money on other stuff. And if you don't have the will of the people behind it, it's not going to happen. So there, that definitely, I think, is a real possibility. I think that's a real possibility too. And so does Delta Airlines. They just went out and started to renegotiate, to demand renegotiating of their their um, bonds with and their, the, the lenders. They want to mm-hmm. change the terms of these loans. <clears throat> and the only way you can have any leverage at all with a lender who's secured by the assets of your company is to threaten bankruptcy. Mm. And I, I, I can promise you that's what they're doing behind the scenes. They're not saying that in public, but that's as soon as you say, we're going to go to our lenders and renegotiate everything. Why would they do it? And the only reason is because we can take you into chapter 11 and force you to do it. Mm, So you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. Either way, we're going to do it. That tells me Delta is in so much trouble, far more than they're saying to the public that they're getting to a point of, Sort of pre-desperation, right? Let's that's let's take so some interesting. I hadn't here. I hadn't read about that news. That is so interesting because, especially to me, because Delta, I would say, is the strongest U.S. airline. So for that, Southwest news to be, might be stronger. Okay, yeah, maybe Southwest, but of but the it, big ones. Yeah, um, they're they're the biggest international, and or, or Delta is the strongest international. So to be hearing know, that about flying. that, like I, I, if you said that about American, I'd be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But to be hearing yeah. that about Delta, uh, that's. Yeah. A big if you're thing. hearing about Delta, you can multiply that times three with with American and United. Right. So if Delta goes, you'll see the other two go as well. And that'll be a whole, you know, wipeout of the airline industry. And Southwest might get drug into it. They haven't ever had that problem before, but they've done the same kind of profligate spending. They have, yeah. And, you know. They and, are not the company changed. they used to be. They're not the company they used to be. So this is the kind of thing, of course, that uh, the rule number one seeks to avoid, and that's why Buffett's out of those stocks. Good point. Uh, avoid losing money on there. Right. So we always want to invert. That's that's We want to look at the downside. We want to know what the downside is. We want to recognize that other people have different, uh, they're playing a different game than we are. We're in the long game where we can buy companies that are in, in trouble from some, uh, they, they're in a certain kind of trouble that we call an event problem. Where, as you just said, it'll last a year to maybe three years. We know how it ends up. We know that if you know they have E. coli poisoning, that they get better control of their health systems and they figure it out. And then in two or three years, public forgets and off we go again. So we we know we know that if a railroad's having trouble, they can figure out how to solve the problem. We or we think they can. 
and then we're going to buy in. We look at these airlines and we think, oh, they're having a problem. They're going to solve it and we can buy in. Or we look at this and go, oh, they can't solve this. They're mm -hmm. running negative numbers that are so large that either the government takes them over and nationalizes the airlines or they go bankrupt. There's just no other real choice here. And mm -hmm. yeah, and it would take a miracle, right? So we don't want to buy into it would take a miracle. <laughs> we, we don't like that, that should be on the checklist. Does and, this take a miracle? <laughs> <laughs> and, and to kind of come around the long way to what our series is right now is we're working through the checklist on, on finding wonderful businesses. And that checklist is designed, purpose-built to find free lottery tickets. That's the idea where there's very little downside, a lot of upside, um, and the checklist is purpose-built for that. And so it's, and it, obviously it's not fully, fully complete. We want to make a checklist that uh, deals with the reality that if your checklist is too big, you won't use it. True. Right. Very You, you need to be true. able to use it. And so you're, you could put in, uh, you know, hundreds of things on the checklist, but we're not going to. We're going to stick to the ones that are big and can bite you and and uh, hopefully you'll find the little ones out there on your own. But yeah, that's the and idea. it's a good it's this is a good place to say as 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 you reiterated at the end of our last episode that each of us needs to build our own checklist, and we're going through this one, which is yours, because it comes from years of experience, and so far has been fantastically helpful and interesting yeah. and awesome. And that said, I would highly tell everybody to use it only as a starting point and to inform your own checklist because we each have stuff that we kind of need to jog our memories on. There's some things that come really easily to me and some things that I forget every single time, no matter what. And so those are definitely going to be different things than what you have in your mind and so we each need to build our checklist based on our own mental processes and our own biases and our own natural ways of thinking about things to um, to basically buffer our own failures, our own systemic failures within our brains. All right, then let's let's go deeper. Okay, let's go deeper. So, so we've sort of we covered... ended. Yeah, go ahead. What? Yeah, what have we covered so far? So we ended last time talking about the section. Um, on moats, which actually wasn't even that long for such an important thing. It's pretty cool. So I'll say again, if you guys are just coming to this series, it's a bit of a weird series because we got totally sidetracked by all the coronavirus insanity in the market and we decided to stop and talk about current events and topical market stuff for a couple months. So if you're just coming to this, go all the way back to the beginning of the series, which I think started in January, if I remember right. So we did the first couple at the beginning of the year, and then now we're picking it back up. We started again last episode, and now we are moving on to management today. The management section, my favorite mm -hmm. section. Yeah, it's a really, really important section. So just to reiterate, we've done rate, we're, we're going down through the checklist based on our acronym um, that we've titled RULES, R-U-L-E-S. So this is an acronym. And the R is radar. Where did where did you see this? Where we, we're urging ourselves to remember that we're not geniuses. And if we're about to buy a stock and no one else has seen what a great opportunity this is, we better red flag that and make sure we really know what we're doing. And which it doesn't doesn't say we shouldn't do it. It just says that 
you know, if you're, especially if you're buying something that's a big company, it's, it's well-known company and you're the only one buying it. Why is it that the 45 gurus that I follow aren't seeing this as well? Right. Yeah. I can understand that if it's a micro stock, a, a, you know, a, a small cap, even um, where that's just too small. It's, it's a rounding error for, for a Buffett or an Einhorn, somebody like that. It, it, even if it does well, it doesn't do much to their portfolio. So I can understand when they're not in there for that. But if it's a big company, if you're looking at Delta Airlines and nobody's buying it, then one of two things, either they're buying it right now and they don't report that for 90 days (laughs) and you're dead on the money um, or you're wrong. (laughs) They're not going to miss it. You're not going to go buy them. All 45 of them are not going to be like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Right? Somebody's going to jump in. All 45 of them? Who are the 45? Oh, well, I have a, I have on, Oh, you on, have a list. Oh, yeah. I, I have, I have uh, curated a list of the 8,000 fund managers out there down to 45. Curated. I think are seriously word. good. And those are the, those are the ones that I track. And, and we look very seriously at what they're buying every quarter. And use it as a, a kind of a watch list starting point. Right? Hmm. That's where we can start research if we're missing something. But it absolutely can be the case that we see this when they see it. It's a big, obvious thing. And you don't know that they're in there because they haven't reported yet. They won't report yeah. for another two months or something. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, okay. Management. This, we're not going to get off. It's management. Okay. Well, just real Checklist. quick. Radar. Understand is the you, and understanding a business is broken up into four chunks, which we call the four M's of investing, meaning, moat, management, margin of safety. So meaning, how does this thing fit into the industry? How does it fit into your value system? Moat, what is durable about this that is going to stand up against competition for a long time? Um, And then management is, do we have management that is really good at allocating capital? And they have integrity and talent, we hope, but we can see if they're good at allocating capital. That becomes an objective point of view. And then finally, margin of safety is what's the thing worth? And, and you know, is it, it what price would we like to pay for it? So that's the understanding part of this list. All right. So let's dive into management. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. Now, you want to just go through the list? I want to do just, exactly what we've been doing. Tell me the first one. Okay. Here comes the first one. And this is, you guys, these are about allocation of capital, the careful allocation of capital. That's what is the job of a CEO. One of the main jobs is allocating capital. So number one, the company has no or little debt. No or little debt. The company has no or little debt. Right. Now you'll see in in management reports or you're reading about it in the newspaper that the company has a debt that's two times adjusted EBITDA. Mm -hmm. You'll read that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And what that is, since companies are tracking, they're tracking earnings before interest and taxes, um, and then they make adjustments to it for stuff that's going on. And believe me, it's a place for scoundrels to play. they will sometimes use that number divided into the amount of long-term debt that they have to get a ratio. So 
debt might be 100 and EBITDA might be 50 and you get a two. So in, in other words, in two years of EBITDA, you'd pay off your debt if you wanted mm -hmm. to. Okay, so that's it's a little bit artificial, but it's it's a useful number. We don't use that. We use two years of one of three things. Take your pick, depending on the company. Two years to three years of earnings, two to three years of free cash flow, or two to three years of owner earnings. So it depends on the company which which one you want to use. But the two that I like better are the free cash flow or owner earnings. They, they'll give you an idea of what's actually available to pay the debt with, whereas earnings gives you an idea of what's theoretically available to pay the debt with. We really kind of prefer what is actually in the bank, which is free cash flow or owner earnings. So those are the, mm -hmm. those are the ones I would prefer to, to look at. And the reason we're using two to three years, I'm kind of giving it a range there, is um, I don't know if you think about it, let's say your family has all the debt that it has, including the house, including the cars and everything else, and you're making $100,000 a year, and all of the debt, everything there is, uh, sorry, you're not making $100,000 a year, you're clearing, let's say you're clearing before you pay your taxes, you're, you've got uh, $20,000 a year left okay. after you pay all of your expenses. Okay. okay you got $20,000 a year left. And let's say you have $40,000 of debt. That includes your house, your cars, your school loans, everything is $40,000. You could see immediately you're in pretty good shape. You could pay everything off in two years. You see that? Yeah. Okay. You're looking at the ceiling. Yeah. I don't know if I would feel like I was in real life in good shape in that situation, but you know. Well, we're not in okay. as good a shape as no as debt. As no I debt, mean, right. No debt's, <laughs> no debt's where we want to be. Yeah. But we will call $40,000 of total debt, including your house and your cars and everything else, um, when you're, you're you're netting 20 before taxes, we would call that pretty decent. You could, yeah. you're not in horrible shape. Yeah. I mean, it also depends on like what, why the debt exists and how much you're paying for it and you know, what, like, do, do you have credit card debt at 20% or do You're you taking have the metaphor way too far here? Oh, I am. Cause that's, I don't know. I look at that stuff. <laughs> okay. Just to keep it. I look like, at that stuff. Debt. I look to see what the debt is that a company well, has. Yeah, that's fair. It's fair. But let's for this one, let's just say they're taking the out stupid debt because they just constantly <laughs> want to have debt. Then I don't Trying like that. To keep it simple here. Okay. Trying. All right. All right. Okay. 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 So here we just say, what's the number? Divide one of those three things into the total debt, right? Divide earnings, total earnings, total free cash flow, or total so owner earnings into the debt. What would be an example of a company where you would use earnings versus free cash flow versus a company where you would free, use free cash flow? Oh, I hate it when you ask questions like that. Well, I'm, this, this is very, this is new because we've always talked about free cash I will tell flow you why in I this said context. That. Okay. I will tell you why I said that. And I wish you weren't smart and snuck up on me there to ambush me with that question. Oh, when please. I first built my tool set, I was, I just <laughs> didn't, I couldn't get, this is back years and years and years ago. I couldn't get free cash flow information very easily. 
<clears throat> free cash flow is not a generally accepted accounting principle. They don't have to calculate it. It wasn't available. In the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, it's become more and more popular. Yeah, true. To have a look. And now it does, it, you can find it very easily. You still can't find owner earnings, but you can find free cash flow. So when I built the tools, I built them on earnings because the rest of it wasn't available from data providers. Got so, it. Since Got the it. tools look at earnings, I kind of had to go like earnings. Yeah, we look at earnings. Okay. And my tools still look at earnings, but the actual right thing to do is to go, and, and I cheated there because- if you were to look at the three, earnings, free cash flow, or earnings, you will always end up with free cash flow or earnings. You won't use earnings all by itself. Because again, you can't pay for debt with earnings. It's artificial. It's fictional. And if a company has a ton of fictional earnings and no free cash flow and you know <clears throat> any debt at all, you may not want to buy them because they can't pay it. I mean, I think that's a really legit reason. And I would also add that your reason for putting that into your tool set is, how do I put this? So like, ah, I'm throwing things around. Um, you can find these numbers out there online, not just in your tool set, right? But like, right. because earnings is an available number and debt's an available number, you will often find that somebody has already done that calculation and gone like, oh, the debt to earnings is this thing, is this number. It's 2.4. And so that's a, it's a relatively common metric that's used to just sort of describe the company. So it is. I think it's, it's actually kind of cool that that's another way to think about it. That I hadn't really, I've I'm always sort of ignored it and I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by it actually. But you know what? Oh, Let man. me ask you this. So sometimes, actually all the time, I look at um, actual cash on hand compared to the debt. Well, they call that something actually out there. They call that net debt. The number that you would get is called net debt. And many times people who are analyzing a company will use net debt rather than debt when they're dividing by EBITDA to come up ah. with this ratio, ah. which I don't like, but it's not completely unfair. It's, and we're a little in the weeds here because I want to keep things simple, but the truth of the matter is, if a company like Apple Computer has $200 billion in cash and $100 billion in debt, they don't really have $100 billion in debt. That's a great example. That's a great example of a company that's been loading on the debt. And I'm like... Why? And the reason is because it's cheap, I guess. But well, two reasons: they can't, they haven't been able to effectively um, bring back money from overseas because they have to pay taxes on it when they bring it back to the United States. So what they're doing instead is loading up on debt, which is offset by cash. Oh, that that's really they interesting. Could bring back if they needed to pay the debt off, but the, it clearly doesn't have the level of risk. Of a company with no cash out there and they load up the same amount of right. as Apple, right? Right. So they, they do call this thing net debt and it is found by simply subtracting cash from long-term debt. And then you divide by EBITDA and you get a number, but it's a little bit scoundrelish because you're not going to use up all your cash to pay off your debt. You just won't. You have to have working capital. You have to have all that money available to keep the company going. So you immediately start going down a rabbit hole 
into having to massively understand the business very carefully to know what kind of cash you can use. So unless this is an Apple computer with a crud load of, of cash sitting out overseas, it's safer to not do a net debt calculation. So when we do it, we don't consider cash. Hmm. It's not wrong to consider cash, but I don't, I, I prefer the more conservative ratio, which doesn't include the cash sitting in the business. Oh, see, I think it's, I've been thinking of it as more conservative to look at what, no, and I'm not talking about this net debt to EBITDA thing at all. Just straight up, how many years would it take them to pay off their debt if they didn't make any more money and they had to just use what was in the bank account? And that's usually much longer than a free cash flow number of years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be also wrong, like crazy to do that. <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> because it assumes something very, very, uh, very wrong about what this company is going to do in the future. It makes an assumption that simply won't happen in the real world on a public company. And that is that somehow they won't use up their cash to keep paying themselves salaries for the next year while they take the company into bankruptcy. I mean, that's true of any of these things, true of the free cash flow metric as well, right? Like, of course, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. They could spend wait, the money wait, on other stuff. Wait, wait. You were saying, I think, maybe I misunderstood, but I thought you were just saying, I'm going to look at something more conservative than free cash flow or earnings or owner's earnings. I'm going to look at the cash they've got and do a ratio of cash into debt mm -hmm. and find out how long it would take them to pay off their debt with the cash they have in the bank. I thought that's what you were saying. And that's that cash saying. in the bank is not going to be in the bank. They they cannot use it to pay their debt because they're going to use it to pay salaries with. Mm -hmm. And it'll go away 100% until they go into Chapter 11. So they won't use it. It's totally, completely fictional as opposed to free cash flow, which they're making every year. And it's not fictional. They could use the free cash flow to pay off. That's what free cash flow is. It's free to use um, any way you want. Because you're saying because free cash flow is only calculated after the salaries have been paid. Right. That's why it's different. Okay, got it. Exactly. After the salaries, after the capital expenditures, after... Yeah. Right. It really is available to do stuff with, to pay debt with. Got it. And one of the giant fiascos of, of the airline industry is instead of paying debt, they bought shares of their own stock. They did stock buybacks, these morons. And so now yeah. Congress is like, screw you. Yeah. All right. So exactly. this is uh, the, a great idea of net debt. Good thing to look at for sure. But unless it's an unusual situation like an Apple, it's safer to just consider free cash flow against the actual debt. Okay. All right. Interesting. Cool. All right. Next one. Okay. The return on invested capital, ROIC. It's the abbreviation, ROIC, is high and not getting smaller. ROIC is high and not getting smaller. So high in terms of ROIC is very industry dependent here, but we arbitrarily call it 10% or better. So okay. not having sophistication enough in my own tool set to say, oh, this industry is, you know, high ROIC in this industry is 20%. And high ROIC in this industry would be like 8%, right? Hmm. We're going to use an, a, a number that's a decent number. You, you think about it, when we do owner earnings, we use 10% as a 
a, a decent yield on our investment. And that's essentially what this is. This is the yield that the company's getting on your money that's in the company, which is called equity, plus the debt the company has. So they say, all right, here's what do we have to work with here? Well, we've got Danielle put in, let's say you're the sole owner. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you get into a whole example, say the say the checklist item again, because I didn't get it all the way down. Okay. The ROIC is high is and high. not getting smaller. And not getting smaller. And then in and not getting smaller. And then in paren, 10% is standard. Yeah. I'm adding this. Good. 10% is standard, yeah. adjust for industry. Okay. Okay, yeah, go so ahead. Some Example. companies, you know, 30, 30% ROIC is available, you know, and some companies it's 5% ROIC. So we, we, we sort of have a standard there that's pretty good. And, and why, why does that standard exist? Because, look, it's the same thing with owner earnings. It's a yield on what you're investing plus what you borrowed. Mm-hmm. So, okay, they've got $100 from you as, as their sole investor of equity that's in the company, and they borrow another 100 over here. So then they've got $200 to work with. What are you all making on that every year? What, and this is a, a, where we use earnings now, so it's fictional. Mm-hmm. But what are you making on that every year as a percentage? And you got to be making 10% to get a, a good thumbs up here. And I like that you say also and not getting smaller, which makes you look at the trend line. So that it's, yeah. It's why ROIC is such an important number. Um, It's the not getting smaller part of it because there can be scoundrels who will operate your company who seem like extremely nice people, but they have an agenda and that agenda does not necessarily mean maximization of utility for you, the owner. It could mean maximization of the benefits to them, the management team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way they would play that game is played quite often this way, and you need to be alert to this, is that they will borrow a lot of money and go buy another company. Very, Mm. very sneaky Mm. way to Mm. get your income raised. So think about this. Imagine if you were working for somebody and if somehow you could get your department size doubled, they would double your salary. You'd be massively incentivized. Yes. To figure out how to double your your department, right? You're running the socks department. I'm going to find some way to double the amount of socks we're we're look. We're putting here in the store. <laughs> so that's exactly what management does. Is they know that um, the game they're playing with salary and perks is based not on earnings but on revenue. Almost everybody bases certainly the the kind of the bonuses get based on earnings and, and blah blah blah. But the actual revenue you're making that is so important for somebody to say I deserve more. So a guy that's running a company or a woman that's running a company, like say Junior Mermetti or somebody running IBM, if IBM's doing, you know, X billions of dollars, if she can make it 2X billion, she can legitimately go into the board of directors and say, you owe me twice as much money. I'm worth twice as much now. Okay. Which if you grew it to double would be awesome. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Assuming assuming earnings followed along. Okay. Big assumption there. Yeah. Big, 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 big assumption. Huge there. assumption. Huge yeah. assumption. And so rather than grow it, which could take years to double your revenue, um, and maybe you can't even think of how to do it any better than you're already doing it, right? You're already growing at 8% a year or something, the fastest you could possibly ever think of growing. Ah, well, the next way for me to make more money is to go buy another company and mm-hmm. just add that new company's revenue to my old company's revenue. And but um, okay, I'm making 15 million last year. This year, I deserve 20 million. That's what they do. And so, how do you pay for that new company? You borrow a bunch of money. Okay, great. Well, then, how would we know whether that's a good idea? And the answer is ROIC will tell us if that was a good idea or whether you were just trying to get more money yourself. Now, what that means is that when this person borrows the money and buys the new company, their return on the new company has to be as good with the borrowed money as it was on the old company without the borrowed money. Mm -hmm. All right. So if we got a hundred dollars here of equity and debt and we're making $10 $10 on it, we've got a 10% return on invested capital. Now we borrow another um, $100, and now we have $200, and we bought this new company. We're going to have to make $20 of invest of, of earnings in order to have a 10% yield or a 10% return on invested capital. We're going to have to borrow. We're going to have to make double the earnings. Yeah. And what yeah. happens Almost so many times. I was going to say always. It doesn't happen always. So much of the time, they borrowed that hundred dollars. Now they're supposed to make twenty, and they make twelve. Yeah, it's really true. And instead of a ten percent return on on your on your invested capital, <laughs> you've got three percent or something. What is what is twelve? Six yeah. percent. You got a six percent return. And all of a sudden return on invested capital went down like a brick and is now getting smaller. It's a screaming sign that management may have turned into traders and are squandering your capital and your and they're allocating badly. Well and often badly. what they say in those situations are, oh, it takes one to two years to incorporate the the company we bought into our company. The employees have to get used to new methods of doing things. Everybody has to integrate. We had to change all the departments around. There's a lot of mess and brouhaha in a merger. And so that is why. And it will come way back up and go past where we were next year. And then the next year, they're like, well, it's going to be another year. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing some and, reading. Well, I mean, <laughs> I've exactly just I've, what happens. I've I've been on the lawyer side of it too. Mergers are hard for companies and the, and that's real what I just said. All that stuff is true. They're not making that up always. No, it they really hard. do believe, right? I it mean, it is hard to integrate sometimes. It doesn't and and to your point, it doesn't always work. Often companies will will merge or buy another company and it really their cultures don't mesh and people start quitting and it really doesn't go very well. So yep. it's, it's a gamble. And I, I completely agree with you that these, these executives who think like, Oh, we'll just expand by buying. Sometimes they're doing awesome stuff and it totally works. And other times just not so much. So. 
you see so that a cool lot in tech companies that um it, it's they, just so cool you've seen this happening in real time as oh, on yeah. on the inside as a yeah. as a merger acquisitions lawyer that's that's amazing i i just see it from the outside as time goes along you start to realize that this management team that you trusted and you thought they had integrity and you thought they had talent turned out to be untalented i won't sure. say they don't have integrity but they're not talented mm -hmm. and <clears throat> they're influenced by their desire to grow and they're growing at my expense they're they're squandering my money and it's very frustrating to watch that happen in a good company it really is and so we watch roic very carefully because we're long-term investors we're going to let it unfold over a period of time and if you're paying attention you know most definitely you want to use this as a change in the story. This could be one of the big changes in the story that causes us to exit that that investment. Yeah, but I mean, I got to say, it's not always automatically bad. It can. It's a very legitimate strategy to grow by acquisition. So Absolutely. it's not always a negative thing automatically. It's not always a positive thing automatically. Like a great example of a really successful one has been Facebook buying Instagram for what at the time seemed like an insane amount of money. And now, frankly, I think is going to become their main business as people get off regular Facebook and move towards Instagram more and more. So, yeah. you know, in uh, hindsight, it was total genius. Right. I mean, there can be there can be very good reasons, typically economies of scale, to grab businesses um, as a just a standard business school strategy to start to create more return on invested capital because yeah. your costs go down theoretically. So it's used used effectively sometimes. Um, another one that's very famous is rolling up an industry that's scattered. Um, you'll see you'll see companies do that, like in the defense. What industry, does rolling up, up an industry mean? I've never heard that. Well, that means you're going out and buying all the mom and pops um, and creating a monster. So, for example, ah. um, the companies that do what Service Pro or whatever their names are, the guys that come and clean up your house when you get a flood. Okay. Those guys are, there's a large nationwide business now because they rolled up all the mom and pops. <clears throat> bought they them bought all, them. put them in the uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> made them more professional, established a better quality, and then now have the power of all that uh, revenue to do national advertising and got branding. It. Got it. So kind yeah, of like these uh new used car new <laughs> new used car companies are doing. Yeah. They're putting the used car lots out of business with Carvana and Yes. What's the other one? Yes. Uh, CarMax, I think. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Okay, Often so Often industries that that turn out where there's three or four companies that are at the end of the day the the winning companies have rolled up or put out of business Dozens I like that of term companies. rolled up. I never heard that before. It's <laughs> the right term. They're what rolling I call up it. all the companies. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the business school guys would go, ah, that's so dumb. It's this. But in any case. All right, no, we gotta like jump. It. Let's okay. let's go deeper into management next time. And, more management uh, more next management. time. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Play. Bye. See ya. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. 
and really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.